Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 135. My name is Nicola seaton Clark, your host, and behind me is the formidable team of Gary Dowell, our editor, and Mark Zanfardino, our audio engineer. This week, we bring you Sharon Shin's The Double-Edged Sword. Sharon has published 26 novels, one collection, and assorted pieces of short fiction since her first book came out in 1995. Among her books are the Twelve Houses series, Mystic and Rider and its sequels, the Samara series, Archangel and its sequels, the Shifting Circle series, and the Elemental Blessings series. You can visit her website at sharonshin.net or on Facebook at Sharon Shin Books. The story is read for us by Julie C. Day. Julie's fiction has appeared in such venues as Interzone, Podcastle, and Resurrection Houses Anthology 8. She holds an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Southern Maine's Stone Coast Program and a Master's of Science in Microbiology from the University of Massachusetts. As well as narrating for Starship Sofa, Julie is also the host of the Small Beer Press podcast. You can find Julie herself on or through her website, links to which are in our show notes. And now... The Double-Edged Sword by Sharon Shin I sat at the back of the dark tavern at the table that, in the past five years, had come to be known as mine. Even on the days when I did not bother to leave my house, or leave my bed, no one sat in this booth except me. The townspeople knew better, and strangers who made the mistake of sitting in my place would be told politely by Samuel that the table was reserved. I was the only one who ever sat there, and Samuel was the only one who would approach me while I was in possession. I idly shuffled my Sappho cards and began laying out an unspecified fortune. It would be my own, of course. These days... I did not read for anyone except myself, and even then I was rarely satisfied with the pictures I saw in the cards. 
The swinging door to the back room swept open wide, admitting the appetizing smell of meat and onions, as well as Samuel's tall, spare figure. Catching sight of me in the dim corner, he checked abruptly and came my way. Asera, I didn't know you were here, he said. What will you have to drink? Wine, maybe. Do you have time to drink it with me? In an hour or so, I will. A glass of ale, then, until you are free, I said. Will you eat with me? he asked. I squinted up at him in the insufficient light. I had not been awake more than an hour, and could not have said with any certainty what time it had been when I rose. Is it almost dinner time? I asked. For you, it is, he said firmly. I laughed out loud. Samuel was convinced that I never ate unless he fed me. Of course, I'm always hungry, he added with a smile. This was meant to coax me to eat for his sake. I'll eat with you, I said. It smells good. I'll get your ale then. He disappeared, returning in a minute with a glass of cold ale and a plate of bread. The bread made me laugh again. He grinned crookedly. He was sandy haired and freckled faced, with weathered skin and an unchanging ruddy coloring that made it hard to place his exact age. I knew it, though. He was fifty eight, seven years older than I was, and he had been a widower for five years. I laid my Zaffo cards out in the standard grid, one card in the top row, four cards in each of the next two rows, and a single card in the bottom row. But I had not turned them face up yet. Now, with the ale and bread arrived as a diversion, I did not feel like reading the cards after all. I swept them back into a pile, reshuffled the deck, and laid the cards aside. The activity of the tavern went on quietly around me. I leaned back on my padded bench and watched. Although I talked to no one except Samuel, I knew all the employees and all the habitues by name. Samuel's eldest son, Groyce, handled most of the upfront business greeting customers, making sure everyone was attended, watching out for trouble. Groyce's wife, a small, pretty girl, waited on tables and flirted mildly with the local patrons. Two other young women served customers, and an old man cooked in the back. At this early hour, there were only half a dozen people in the bar, talking quietly, playing board games, or teasing the young girls. I had lived in Sala City for five years now, and I could tell you the name of every man and woman who inhabited it, but I had yet to get closer to a single one of them than I was at this exact moment. Except for Samuel, of course. And we were only close because of the bargain we had struck one night five years ago. At that, it was not a true friendship. He felt grateful, and I felt secure. And so he let me stay, and I stayed. I sipped at my ale and watched Samuel confer briefly with Groyce before disappearing again into the back room. This was the table I had taken that night five years ago, 
when I had just paused in Solace City to break my aimless journey for one night. Samuel had served me then, but absently, with clumsy, choppy motions that irritated me, because most of the wine had spilled from his unsteady hands to the table. I was laying out the cards then, too, and I had been afraid of staining one of them, although it didn't matter if the whole deck was ruined, if the whole deck was lost. Could you bring me a cloth, please? I had said coldly, so I can wipe this up? He had immediately done so, but instead of handing me the linen, he had stood beside me, wrapping the white napkin around and around his hands. You are a Holina, he said, when I finally looked up with a scowl. Yes, I snapped. What of it? I have... My wife is next door. She is dying. That is, we have a Holina in the city who has done what she can. She says my wife is dying. Anger and fear had risen in me, for I knew what was coming next, knew and did not want to deal with it. She is probably right, then, I said. But you are a Holina, he said, almost stupidly. Holina, wise woman, healer. We have varied powers, we who are filled with the magical blood of Leith and Igava. Some of us are very skilled, and some of us are merely well taught, and I had no way of knowing just how good the local practitioner was. There is nothing I can do for you, I said. He went on as if I had not spoken. She is in such pain. Her head, her lungs, her whole body. She has begged me to take her life because she is in such terrible agony. But I cannot do that. I wanted to put my hands over my ears and shut out the sound of his voice. I also wanted to put them over my eyes to block out the sight of his face. I could not do both. There is nothing I can do for you, I said again. In the six years that I had been wandering through Seretis, from the throne room of Veralis to the rocky hills of Limbeth, this was the response. I'd given it to everyone who had asked a favor of me. There had not been many. I did not look with my grim face and darkling expression like a woman of kindly disposition. But she is dying, he said. I opened my mouth to refuse him again, but somehow the words went unsaid. Perhaps it was the dazed grief in his gray eyes, or perhaps it was the dormant power in my own body that made me say what I had no intention of saying. I will look at her, I said, rising, but I make no guarantees. I doubt if there is anything I can do and so I accompanied him to the small house behind the big tavern, the house that, under other circumstances, would have been pervaded with a welcoming charm. But a woman lay dying inside, and so the house was filled with fear instead. I knew as soon as I entered the sick room that the woman was ill beyond my powers of healing. The chamber was shallowly lit by clusters of tapers shielded behind brightly painted screens. 
Someone had brought in fresh flowers in an attempt to cheer up the sick woman. Everywhere were similar evidences of hopeful affection. But there were not enough flowers or candles in Soretus to bring this woman back to life. I did not say so, of course. She was conscious, but barely. She turned uneasily when I entered the room. Sam, she said faintly, and the lanky man crossed to her side. He took her hand so gently he could have been imprisoning butterflies. Nonetheless, she had to bite back a cry of pain. The look upon his face was sheer desolation. I've brought a Halana to look at you, Mari, he said in a low voice. I supposed her fever had made her ears sensitive to sound as well. Can you say hello? Halana, she said drowsily and turned her eyes blindly my way. But I could see from the cloudy irises that she could not make out my features, nor, if it came to that, her husband's. I crossed the room quietly and held my hands on either side of her face. I did not quite touch her skin, and she did not moan aloud. Even without touching her, I could feel the heat from her cheeks burn against my palms. I stayed in the room a few moments, trying to determine what her disease was, while Samuel talked nonsense to distract her. A few minutes was all I could stand. I left as soon as I could have been expected to make a diagnosis. Samuel followed me shortly. On his face was a look of fugitive hope. Well, he said, do you think, what do you think? I was wont to be blunt at times like these, but he looked so vulnerable that I tried to temper my words. There are some diseases that can be cured, and some that cannot, I said. Hers is an illness for which there is no remedy. He stared at me steadily, while all the light seemed to die slowly from his plain, good-natured face. I had not meant to add even this much— but his expression of despair moved me more than I wished. I have something I can give her that will ease her pain, I said. It will not make her well, but it will make her dying less terrible. You are sure she will die? In less than a week. Yes, I am sure. He had flinched when I named the time, but I saw no reason to spare him from the knowledge. But you can lessen her suffering with some potion? It was not a potion exactly. I would speak a complex spell over a simple glass of water, and its very essence would change. But I did not explain this to him. Those who are not Halani prefer to believe in filters and potions. It makes them uneasy to rely upon incantations. That is exactly it, I said. Wait here, and I will return with the drug. And so I had gone to the bar and requested water, and paused a moment to pour it into one of the small glass vials I always carried. Shortly thereafter, the medicine had been administered. I had not stayed to see the efficacy of my drug. I was hungry, and I had gone back to the tavern to eat my interrupted meal. Sam had rejoined me in something less than an hour, his face transformed with wonder. Mari was lucid. She who had been raving before. 
she had allowed him to take her hand, to kiss her face, without crying out from the agony his lightest touch inflicted. He had told her that she was dying, that this blessed surcease was a gift, but not the greatest gift. And even so, she had laughed. I feel so good, Mari had exclaimed. Even the gift of my life could not make me so happy. Sam related this whole conversation to me. I am glad to hear it, I had said somewhat sourly, trying to finish my meal. How can I thank you, he demanded. Such a wondrous thing you've done. I have not saved her, I warned him. Don't be deceived. Her body is careening headlong toward death, and I can do nothing to arrest that journey. He watched me steadily again with those gray eyes. I thought somewhat irrelevantly that this man was nobody's fool. I understand that, he said almost patiently. But you don't understand. She was in such pain, and now she is at peace. There is nothing I would not do to thank you. Let me finish my dinner in solitude, I said, and tell no one what I have done for you tonight. But no one, I interrupted. If you want to thank me, leave me alone. I am not much interested in interfering in the lives of others, and I do not want them interfering in mine. He had continued to watch me with that narrowed, intelligent gaze, and I had the sudden feeling that I had told him, in a few simple sentences, the whole story of my tangled life. But all he said was, I understand. I will say nothing to anyone. You will be free from importunity as long as you stay. Mari had died six nights later. I did not attend the funeral services. Samuel did not ask me to. He did not ask me how long I planned to stay in Sala City. He never asked me to intercede for the life or health of any other citizen, and I was relatively certain that he knew of others, over the years, who could have used my help. He did ask me, the day after Mari died, what my name was. Asera, I said, if he recognized it. He gave no sign. Samuel himself brought two steaming plates of food to the table about an hour later. Croyce's pretty wife followed with a bottle of wine and two glasses. She smiled at me shyly, but said nothing, and fled as soon as she had set the pieces upon the table. Samuel decanted and poured. She's afraid of me, I observed. He looked after his daughter-in-law. Who, Lena? She thinks you're a crazy old woman. Everyone does. I'm not that old, I said. But crazy? I shrugged. Who isn't? The food was delicious, as always. After Lena had cleared our dishes away, Sam leaned back and stretched his arms. Out of habit, I pulled out my Zaffo cards again and began shuffling. Sam and I never talked much during meals or after them but our silences were filled with a wordless companionship. Now he spoke, surprising me. Do you ever look at them, he said. I glanced up. What? He gestured to the cards that I had lain out again, absent-mindedly in the standard grid. Your cards. 
You always place them on the table this way, but you never turn them over and look at them. I made a wry face. Sometimes I do. I don't like the pictures I see. What pictures do you see? What pictures does one ever see in a Zaffo deck? I don't know. I've never seen one. Now I was amused. You've never had your fortune told? Not even once? Just for fun? No, never. I have too much respect for the powers of the Halini to approach one lightly. Now you do, perhaps, I scoffed, since you have such high respect for me. He grinned. So do you want to read my fortune? I shook my head. I never read for anyone but myself. He motioned at the cards again. Then read one for yourself. I would like to see the pictures. I hesitated a moment. He caught my reluctance. Then don't, he said swiftly. I shrugged and smiled. Why not? They can't tell me anything I don't already know. But if you have never seen this done, I will have to explain everything. I turned over the top card, alone in the upper row. This is called the primary signifier, I told him. It represents me as I am, or as I was. No surprise, the top card was the Black Queen. I was dark-eyed and dark-haired, but the card meant more than that. It spoke of a somber personality weighed with heavy cares. The brooding queen invariably turned up in my fortune, either as my present or my future. Now... Most Hellini read the cards in the order in which they are laid out. But I like to skip around, I told him, reaching for the last card, the single one in the fourth row. This card will tell us who I will become. The image revealed was not the one I was expecting. It was the hooded figure, a dark, faceless form with its hands outstretched. It looks somewhat threatening, Samuel observed. Indeed. This card means many things, most of them ominous. It stands for the shadowed future, the as-yet-to-be-revealed. Sometimes it is an intimation of death. At other times it is a warning of a change to come. I gave Sam a twisted smile. I told you I do not much care for the readings I do. You do not have to go on, then, he said seriously. No. Now I am curious. I indicated the four cards in the second row. Fortune, home, heart, career, I recited. The pictures of my past. I turned over the cards in order. Fortune. The open box. Everything the soul could desire. Home. The Lord's castle, with its white stone walls and graceful gables. Heart. But here my own heart nearly stopped beating. The Black King reversed. What does it mean when a card is upside down? Sam wanted to know. It means the opposite of whatever the card usually means, I said through a constricted throat. Or that something has gone wrong with that person or that thing.
The last card in this row was scarcely any more comfort. Career. The spilled wine. Promises gone awry. None of this makes any sense to me, Sam said. Perhaps it would not seem so terrible, said aloud. The cards say that at one time I lived a grand life, in a grand house, and my every wish was indulged, I said. I cared for a dark-haired man, but he... something happened to him, and my career from that point on became something of a waste. He lifted his eyes to my face, his eyebrows raised, but he did not ask me if any of this was true. And what about your future? I was more cautious this time, and turned the cards over one at a time. Fortune, I murmured, the double-edged sword. What I have is equally likely to be used for good or evil. Home, I smiled. The roadside tavern, any place of well-being or cheer. Sam was pleased. My bar is in your cards? It looks that way. I turned over the third card, the battling twins. Interesting. What? What does that mean? My heart is in conflict. My dreads and my desires pull me in two. He was watching me again, as if trying to assess the truth of that. I suppose you know whether or not any of this has any relevance to you, he remarked. I laughed shortly. I suppose I do. I turned over the last card. Career, I named it. The White Queen. It seems a fair-haired woman, or a very good woman, is going to become my patron. Now Sam was smiling. That does not seem too likely, at least, he said. No, I replied. Just then the front door opened, and a phalanx of uniformed guards strode in, their feet making a rhythmic tattoo on the wooden floor. It was late spring, and cold, and they wore fur-edged cloaks over their blue and gold livery. Behind them, her silk-white hair haloed by the low afternoon sun, entered a small, blonde woman with an unmistakably noble face. Everyone in the bar stared at her during the few minutes it took her eyes to adjust to the dimness inside. After my first quick look, I turned my eyes back to the table and pushed all my cards together. I knew, even before I heard her hesitant footsteps crossing the floor, that she had come to Sala City, looking for me. She wanted to speak to me privately, but I insisted that Sam stay to hear our conference. Whatever you tell me, I will repeat to him, I said listlessly. He may as well hear everything as you say it. So Sam moved to my side of the table, and the stranger seated herself across from us, and her five guards arranged themselves as a screen between us and the rest of the tavern. Croyce brought a fresh bottle and a third glass, and Sam poured for us all. She just touched her lips to the amber liquid and laid the glass aside. I know who you are, she said. I felt Sam physically restrain himself from looking at me. He thought I would ask him to leave now. But why should I? He had not betrayed me in the five years he had known me. No matter what was revealed now, it seemed unlikely he would repeat it to anyone. 
How did you find me? I wanted to know. She was not ready to drop the discussion of my identity. A Sarah Vega, she said, as if it was a challenge. Halana Rex. The King's Halana. I closed my eyes briefly. Former Halana Rex, I corrected, looking at her again. She was very beautiful. She had pale skin over delicate bones. Her eyes were a flawless blue. On every finger of her left hand, she wore a ring that looked impossibly expensive. On her right hand, she wore only two rings. But neither of them looked cheap either. How did you find me? I asked again. Someone who had been in Viralis passed through here several months ago, the woman said. She recognized you. It had been eleven years since I had lived at the King's Palace in Viralis, and I had changed since then. Whoever had recognized me must have had very sharp eyesight. I can only suppose, I said quite dryly, that you have come to me because you need a favor. It is a terrible favor to ask, she said. Her voice was low and sweet, and she pitched it most persuasively. The blue eyes looked dense with sadness. I braced myself for what she was going to say, because I knew what it would be. And I was right. I want you to kill a man, she said. I heard Sam inhale sharply. I glanced over at him and smiled. He was trying hard to keep his face under control, but her words had undoubtedly shocked him. She asked me this, I explained kindly. "'because it is believed that I once killed a man in Viralis. "'The king,' she said. "'Her name,' she told us, was Leonora Kensington. "'Her husband was Sir Errol Kensington, "'son of Sir Haven of Kessing, "'a wealthy territory not far from Sala City. Six months ago, Sir Haven was in a terrible hunting accident,' she said. "'She could scarcely look at us while she told the story.' Instead, her eyes were fixed on her interlaced fingers. Something frightened his horse, and the animal bolted. Sir Haven was thrown from the saddle, but his... his foot caught in the stirrup, and he was dragged along the ground. When she resumed speaking, her voice was even softer than before. When they found him, his leg was broken, and his collar was broken, and his neck was broken. Samuel gave her one of the linen napkins. She pressed it to her eyes, and it came away damp. She still did not look at us. They did not think he would live, she continued. But he did. His leg healed, and all the cuts and bruises healed. But something else had broken. Something in his neck. He cannot feel anything anywhere in his body. Or... At least they do not think he can. He does not react when his body is touched. But he cannot speak and tell us what he feels, and what he does not feel. He can't speak, Samuel asked her. Can he hear you? Can he think and see? His eyes are open, and sometimes he moves them to follow activity. He can grunt and make noises, but they cannot be understood. We can't ever be sure he understands us. But 
Bella believes he can. Bella? His wife. My husband's mother. She tends him night and day. She dribbles food down his throat and cleans him. Leonora shuddered delicately. I took that to mean that caring for the invalid was no easy task. She is devoted to him, she whispered. Who is looking after the affairs of Kessing? Samuel wanted to know. It was a fair question. Kessing was a good-sized territory, and its lord was absolute law for several thousand souls. Lady Bella and my husband divide much of the work between them, Leonora said. Once she had finished the harrowing tale of Sir Haven's accident, Leonora felt capable of facing us again. She lifted her drowned blue eyes and fixed them on Samuel. I wondered what sort of effect their limpid sweetness would have on him. But at Kessing, we maintain the fiction that Sir Haven still rules. How is that done? I asked. She looked at me. Sir Haven has always held a public audience twice a month, at which any vassal or tenant could air a grievance or sue for a favor, she said. He still holds these open meetings. We carry him out and set him upon a chair, and people recite their petitions. Bella and Errol actually decide the cases, but if they make a ruling with which he disagrees, he grunts and moans and twists in his chair. So they call back the petitioner and revise their original judgment. So he is able to communicate, Sam said thoughtfully, in a way, and he is able to understand what goes on around him. He seems to be, and yet his condition has not improved for six months? It has not improved. It has not deteriorated. It has not changed at all. And what do your Halani say? I assume you have consulted one or two. A smile touched her sad lips. Dozens. They have fed him no end of potions and chanted hundreds of spells over his head. Nothing has availed. His body remains broken and his spirit remains trapped. And so you want me to kill him, I said evenly. She looked at me quickly with her blue eyes utterly serious. I have always loved Sir Haven, she said. He is a good man, and he has done many good things. But I cannot bear to see him suffer so much, day after day, dependent on another's hand to feed him and bathe him and tend him. You don't understand. You never knew him. He was so alive, so active, so sure of himself. To see him like this... I would not want to live in such a way. I would not condemn anyone to such a life. And why should a Sarah be the one to murder him? Sam asked bluntly. If you have dozens of Halani already at your fortress. It is a terrible thing to ask another human being to take a life, she said quietly. And it is, as you say, murder. If one of the resident Halani were to commit such an act and be discovered, he or she would be put to death as well. I cannot ask them to do it. And Asera? What if someone discovered she had poured the poison into the Lord's drink? Sam asked. You've asked it of her. No one knows her at Kessing, Leonora replied quickly. 
One person has already recognized her, he pointed out. But Asera could come in disguise. No one would ever know she had been the one to kill him. I smiled at Sam again. He was such an innocent. All the years of intrigue that I had witnessed at Veralis would stand me in good stead now. No, and no one would ever be certain if he had been murdered, or if he had merely died at last, I told Sam. That is the other reason the lady would like to hire my services. Sam looked from me to Lenora and back to me. I don't understand. I kept my eyes on Lenora and my voice casual. It has been eleven years, but surely you remember the scandal that attended King Revere's death, I asked. He had been unwell for a few days. Everyone knew this, for there are no secrets at Veralis, and I had mixed him a batch of potions to restore him to good health. Shortly after taking one of them, one night, he died. Did I kill him? Was he much sicker than anyone had supposed? Did some prince or courtier, knowing I might be blamed, mix a deadly filter and administer it in place of mine? No one was ever completely certain. Which is why, Samuel, my friend, I sit here with you today in Sala City, instead of drifting over the scattered lands of Seretis, as smoke and ashes, having been burned at the stake for treason. There was a short silence. Lenora did not like to say baldly that she was sure I had killed my king, although clearly she believed it. Sam offered no comment at all. I'm interested in knowing, I said, what the Lord's wife and son think about this idea of yours. The blue eyes were utterly guileless. She met my gaze openly. It was Bella's idea, she said softly. She is the one who recognized you here a few months back. My eyes narrowed. That could very well be the truth. I had seen the traveling coach bowl through Sala City and recognized the heraldry on the door. For all of Revere's vassals were known to me, at least by reputation. I had not gone to the trouble of ducking behind a doorway as the horses slowed and passed. I had not expected to be identified. And your husband? I asked. He is not convinced. But he has said to me in private that it would be a blessing for his father if he should die. And who rules Kessing when Sir Haven is gone? Errol. And if Errol should die without heirs, his sister. And what does she think of this scheme to dispatch her father? She has not been informed. I picked up my glass of wine, which, like Lenora's, was almost untouched. Even Sam had only taken one or two swallows. I sipped the sweet, heavy liquid meditatively and thought it over. Well, clearly this angelically fair woman would profit if the murder were carried out. But as the case was presented, it was hard to tell if that was her motive. Giving all the participants the benefit of the doubt... It could be that they truly planned a mercy killing for which the corpse itself would thank me, for which all of Kessing would thank me, no doubt. I knew how uneasy subjects and vassals could become when their leader fell ill or grew uncertain, but to coolly and with calculated forethought kill a man. When is the next public audience? I asked her. 
She tried to smother her hopeful look. A week from today, Helena, she said. Will you come? I nodded slowly. I think so. I want to see Sir Haven for myself. At that point, I will decide whether I will help you or not. And if you decide to help me, I will give you a potion to give to your lord. It was nearly full dark by the time Lenora left. Sam escorted her out. When he returned to my table, he was carrying a fresh bottle of wine. We had drunk very little of the sweet, fruity stuff he had brought for his visitor, and this was a dry red wine Sam usually chose for his serious drinking. He had finished two glasses before either of us said a word. Why don't you go ahead and ask me? I said finally. I had elected to stay with the sweeter vintage, and I was sipping it much more slowly. He poured himself another glass. Why did you agree to go to Kessing and look this lord over? <laughs> I was surprised into a laugh. That's not the question, I said. It's the question I'm interested in the answer to. I raised my own glass and inhaled the heavy, honeyed aroma. I said, The real question is, Did you kill King Revere, or did you not? That's not something I would ask you, Sam said quietly. I have always wanted to know, I said, if you recognized my name when I arrived here five years ago. I recognized it. And so you must have known the scandal that followed me across Soretis. I had heard it. And yet you never wondered whether or not you harbored a murderer in your establishment? I did not care, he said deliberately. I had erased the pain from his wife's body, and so he did not care what I had done to others. He added, Then? I pounced on the word. Then? And now? He raised his eyes and regarded me steadily. It was a familiar look. He often studied me this way. I was never sure what he hoped to learn. I have always thought that you probably know how to kill a man. I swallowed some of my wine. I do. And that you have probably, in fact, killed one or two in your life. I took another swallow. I have. And it has seemed to me that whatever reasons you would have had for such actions would satisfy me, so I didn't worry about it. That easily. I had won a man's trust merely by keeping silence for five years. I leaned back against the bench and closed my eyes. When I was first named Halana Rex, I said, I was known more for healing than for killing, for I had quite extraordinary abilities. Some Halani are born healers. They need only to lay their fingers upon a man to cure his disease or to knit together the severed fibers of his bones. I had such skills in those days. I radiated power. My hands seemed to glow at night when I watched them in the dark. I had consumed more of the wine than I had thought, for my head was beginning to ache, and behind my closed eyes I felt the bar rock gently around me. Five summers after I joined Rivers' court, I said, there was an epidemic, a plague. It swept through the villages on the roads leading to Veralis. 
It rampaged through the royal household. It laid low guards and servants and noble ladies and faithful vassals and visiting dignitaries. No one was safe. No one was spared. Except me. So strong were my healing powers that I never succumbed to illness. Naturally, I ran through the castle, wherever the sickness took root, laying my hands upon the afflicted ones and exercising the plague. I went to the guard houses and the guest houses and the nearby inns and villas to find felled bodies writhing on the beds and on the floors. On each hot cheek I laid my cool hands, and the disease was routed. I rode like a mad woman through the night to the nearest villages and stretched my arms out so that twenty people at a time could crowd around me and scratch at my flesh and be healed just by touching me. So exhausted was I after three days of riding that I collapsed in the square of one of these villages, unconscious and unmoving, and still they brought the ill and the helpless to my side, and still they reached out to touch me, and still they were cured. I was silent for a long moment. I had not noticed Sam finishing his last glass of wine, but now I heard him pour another one. Yet... It is not healing for which I am remembered, I said finally, but for killing. You never answered my question, he said. I opened my eyes and looked at him. The wine or the memories or the dim lighting of the bar made him look softer and younger than usual. What question was that? Why did you agree to go to Kessing and see the Lord? You have not raised a hand to help a soul since the night you gave peace to my Mari. I closed my eyes again. Because Lenora was wrong, I said. I did know Sir Haven of Kessing, eleven years ago, when I lived at Veralis. I had expected the public audience at Kessing to be gruesome, and it was. Like most of the major fortress holdings of Seretus, Kessing was built of a heavy gray stone that even on sunny days seemed to enclose a gloomy chill. Inside was a huge chamber where all the supplicants gathered twice a month to make their requests of their lord. Such public audiences were often loud and boisterous affairs. But at Kessing, where the petitioners spoke to a pitiful shell of a man, the mood was somber and deeply depressing. Sam had casually offered to accompany me on the journey, and I had casually accepted. But inwardly, I had been extremely grateful for his escort. I was doubly grateful for his presence now, a solid bulk in this sea of strangers. We stood at the back of the enormous room, gazing over perhaps two hundred bodies, staring toward the days at the far end where Sir Haven of Kessing had been installed. Everything Lenora had said of him was true. His head lolled back on his unsupportive neck. His arms and legs hung uselessly down. He had been tied to a large cushioned chair, so that he seemed at least to be sitting up and facing us. But his slack mouth and unfocused eyes gave little evidence that his mind was engaged. Beside him, Lady Bella knelt on an embroidered stool. Lenora stood behind him, gazing down at the inexpressive face. Sir Errol stood at the head of the stage, a herald beside him to call out names, and gravely listened to each petition. It was not a cheery or inspiring scene.
What do you think of the Lord's wife? I whispered in Sam's ear as we watched the slow procession. She seems to genuinely love the man, he whispered back. It's a hard thing to counterfeit under such conditions. I nodded. And his son? He seems capable enough, but not a happy man. Does he want his father dead? Wouldn't you, Sam said slowly, if your father lived like this? And the son's wife? Only once had Lenora lifted her head and surveyed the crowd. Within minutes she had spotted us. I could see the color of her eyes even across the wide stone floor. She had not smiled or nodded, but merely dropped her gaze again to her father-in-law's face. She's ambitious, I think, Sam said slowly, but she does not look cruel. Tell me, I said, what would you choose if you were Sir Haven of Kessing? Would you want to continue to live, imprisoned in such a wreck of a body? Or would you want some kind soul to mete out the poison that would let you die quietly and in peace? I would drink the poison, and gladly, Sam said. So would I. For a few moments longer, I watched Sir Haven across the room. As I had told Sam, I had known Haven and Lady Bella, but not well. And that had been eleven years ago. He had been a laughing, viral, confrontational man who had had as many friends as enemies at Veralis. Revere had trusted him, though they had disagreed often enough, and spectacularly enough to be considered wary allies. I had not dealt much with court politics, but of course I had met most of the personalities of the day, and Haven had been one of the brightest. He had not been at Veralis when Revere died. He had not been one of those who accused me or defended me. I wondered what opinion he had, in fact, held of me. Not that the knowledge would influence me one way or the other now. We had been there maybe an hour when a strange commotion erupted on the dais. Sir Errol had just pronounced some sentence on a cowed-looking yokel when the mangled body of Sir Haven made a violent reaction. Even from this distance we could hear the formless grunts and whines. We could see the head snake and the shoulders twitch against the sides of the chair. Lenora's hands flew to her cheeks. Bella's fingers wrapped themselves around her husband's wrist. Errol crossed to his father's side and bent over the shivering body, as if to try and understand the indecipherable sounds. He turned back to the man he had just dismissed. Wait, he called out. My father has reversed the judgment. On the word, Sir Haven grew calm again. The dejected man straightened and made a field-hand salute toward the stage. My lord, he said, and backed into the crowd. All around us, the audience murmured in a muffled unease. I can't stand this, I said. I found that my fingers had clutched Samuel's arm in a grip that must have been painful. I dropped my hand. Do you want to leave, he asked. I shook my head. I owe Haven the courtesy of staying long enough to be certain. And so we stayed. Through each grim petition, each inaudible argument, Haven did not again attempt to communicate. It was with indescribable relief that I saw the last petitioner make his case, hear his judgment, bow, and rejoin the assembly. Now what? 
Everyone appeared to be waiting for some cue, some gesture of release. I saw activity on the dais and realized that four footmen had lifted the Lord's chair and now were carrying it carefully off the stage, down through the ranks of petitioners and toward the exit. No one would leave the room before the Lord. As the crowd divided, Sam and I found ourselves along the aisle that opened between the dais and the door. Wordlessly, we watched as Haven was carried toward us, his arms flopping against the sides of the chair, his gaze running wildly around the circle of watching faces. He saw me, and his eyes locked on mine. It was as if he tried to lunge from the chair. His body spasmed, and one of his feet kicked out, landing with considerable force against the footman's chin. The servant stumbled, lost his grip, and came to his knees, desperately trying to keep his hold. Bella screamed from the stage. The crowd loosed a collective gasp of dismay and stepped backward as if to avoid contamination. The other footman hastily settled the chair on the floor as Sam strode over to offer assistance. I trailed reluctantly behind. "'Shall I call for help?' Sam asked. "'Do you want me to carry one leg?' "'No, no, I just lost my balance,' said the shaken servant. I paid little attention to the conference between Sam and the footman. I ignored the sound of Bella's footsteps hurrying across the hall. Haven was still staring at me, still trembling in his seat. His mouth worked as if he would speak the most urgent message. He recognized me. That was clear. He knew what I was capable of. Did he want to shriek at me to go away? To leave him alone? To take my sorceress potions elsewhere? Did he want to beg me to release him? I knelt before him and took one nerveless hand in mine, feeling the fingers lax and chilly. As soon as I touched him, he grew still. He stopped his frantic jerking. Even his eyes seemed more serene, though they never wavered from my face. I could read that look, I thought. Do what you can for me. I squeezed his fingers, then dropped his hand as Bella came skidding to a halt beside him. I did not want her to see me again, to guess why I had come. I stepped back into the silent crowd and turned my face away until Haven had finally been carried out the door. We had agreed to meet Lenora at a small inn just outside the fortress gates. She came to us that evening with another cadre of guards in the blue and gold livery of Kessing. Well, she asked the instant she was shown into our room, do you believe now that I told you the truth? I believe you, I said wearily. I had mixed up a potion as soon as we entered the inn. I had sworn to never again interfere in the lives of others. But it is easier to break a promise to yourself than to break a promise to someone else. No one should have to live like that. I handed her the vial wrapped in blue silk, the color of her eyes. She took it from me with those eyes at their widest. This is it? Already? This is the potion? she asked, almost stammering. What must be done? He must drink all of it, I said. There is not much, and it has no flavor. It can be mixed in wine or water. He will not know what he is taking. She unwrapped the vial and stared at the clear liquid through the glass. 
and it will not hurt him, she whispered. He will feel no pain. None, I swear to you, I said. Quickly, she rewrapped the filter and tucked it inside her reticule. I wondered exactly how she planned to administer this to him, but decided not to ask. She seemed quite resourceful. What do I owe you? She wanted to know. I shook my head. I want nothing from you. But surely I have brought gold with me and jewels. This is not a service for which I wish to be paid, I said quietly. She hesitated a moment, then nodded. Very well, she said. On behalf of Sir Haven and his family, I thank you. I don't want thanks either, I said. She could see that I would not take her hand, but she required something more of a leave-taking, so she offered her hand to Sam. He took it gravely, shook it, and released her. Goodbye, my lady, he said, and ushered her toward the door. I was staring out the single small window, but I knew he had turned back to watch me once he locked Lenora out. Do you want to leave for Sala City first thing in the morning? he asked. It was not quite dusk and the trek would take us several hours. No, I said. I want to leave tonight. Now. We did not push the horses, and in fact the cool, starlit journey was almost pleasant. In the night air, sound seemed to be invested with a strange significance. Each hoofbeat, each jingle of the bridle sounded distinct and mysterious in the plush silence. We encountered no other travelers on the way. We had been riding for nearly two hours when I began without prompting to tell my story. Revere was dying, I said. I was the only one who knew it. He had contracted a disease of the blood for which I did not have the remedy. I tried, Leith and Ageva, how I tried, to produce an antidote that would save him. But there are some diseases, I have learned, for which there are no cures. He was not in great pain, that much, as you know, I could do for him. But his body was growing frail, and his memory had become unreliable. As I said, no one but me knew just how sick he was, and me he had sworn to secrecy. Revere did not fear many things, but he had an absolute abhorrence of weakness, of dependency. He hated to see someone beg. He did not even care much for humility. The idea of a gradual wasting illness, which would leave him utterly at the mercy of others, was terrible to him, and so he asked me for a filter that would release him early into death. I fell silent a moment. Samuel made no comment. Had I not seen his fingers shift upon the reins, I would have thought he was asleep. At first I refused, for he was my king, and I did not want him to die. Also, I had not yet despaired of finding a cure. But no more than he could, could I bear to see him fall into faintness and delirium. And we agreed that if he were to die by his own hand, it should be while he was still able to rationally choose such a death. It was Revere who came upon the plan. He had me mix up a month's supply of potions, all in separate identical bottles. Twenty-nine of them would be filled with a few harmless ounces of water. Only one would carry the death dosage inside. He would drink one every night before he went to bed, 
destroying the bottle before he slept so that no one would find it and later suspect that I had given him poison. He chose this method, I added, because he said that no man, even one who wanted to die, should know with certainty the hour of his death. And did you, in fact, present him with the thirty bottles? Samuel asked at last. I did. And upon which night did he die? I whispered, the twenty-third. It seems to me, Sam said, his voice slow and comforting in the dark, that a king as clever as Revere was said to be would know that suspicion would fall on you, no matter how careful he was with these bottles. Oh, he knew it. I knew it. He wanted me to leave Veralis a few days before he began taking his nightly potions, so I would not be there for any inquisition. But I could not bear to leave him while he was still alive, while there still might be something I could do for him, however small. I was prepared for the maelstrom that followed. At that, I did not greatly care if they condemned me to death or allowed me to live. Not much really mattered to me once Revere was dead. You loved him. Sam said. He had a wife and three daughters, and he was twenty years older than I was. Yet you loved him, Sam repeated stubbornly. I believed in him, I said. He was an autocratic and domineering man, but he had such vision and strength of purpose. There was nothing he could have asked me to do that I would not have done, for it seemed to me that this man, more clearly than anyone I had ever met, understood right and wrong in the largest sense. I am not the only one from whom he commanded great devotion. We were a court of disciples, and we fell apart when our leader died. And yet I hear good things about his daughter, who is now the queen. Yes, I said wearily. She is an intelligent woman, and she rules well. But she is not Revere. Something went out of the world when Revere died. Something went out of you, he said. I looked over at him, but I could not see much in the dark. What do you mean? You're the healer, he said. Mend your own broken heart. Your heart has been broken, I said swiftly. Do you think it is an easy thing to fix? I think, he replied carefully, that someone with the right skills could heal me. I faced forward again. The road ahead looked endless. There are some things for which there are no cures, I said. It might have been my imagination, but I thought I heard him sigh. We rode on into the unchanging darkness. Naturally, I slept late the next day. It had only been a few hours before dawn when Sam and I arrived in Sala City. He had accompanied me to the cottage I had rented on the edge of town, watching me dismount and take the reins of my horse. It was, after all, his horse. He did not say goodbye as he rode away, and I did not look back at him as I let myself into my unlit house. Now it was late afternoon, and I was surprisingly hungry. I had not eaten for nearly twenty-four hours, but still, hunger was a sensation I rarely experienced. I rose and moved aimlessly about my cottage, but there was very little in the cupboards which could be turned into a meal. I knew better than to rely on the gentleness and seeming strength of any man. I had gone so long without yielding my burdens to anyone. 
what made me long now to take my comfort from somebody else's heart? I shook my head and concentrated on putting together a makeshift meal from some moldy biscuits and a vinegary jug of wine. Out of habit, I pulled out my Zaffo cards and shuffled them. Mostly to distract myself, I laid out a standard grid and turned the cards over in my own unconventional order. The primary signifier, the hooded figure. The final outcome, the black queen. I smiled faintly. These same two cards had appeared in the last reading I had done. Only then their positions had been reversed. Now the shadowy, uniformed image was in my past, and in my future was the assured, powerful, dark-haired woman. What had I left behind then? And what was I to become? The four cards in the second row, the pictures of my past, showed me more hazy and undefined images. There, the secretive moon that refused to answer questions. There, the locked box showing that treasures had been denied. Again, the black king reversed. Beside him, the roan stallion, who bespoke restlessness, travel, and change. In the third row, all was altered. A stack of twelve coins indicated the richness of my fortune, and a blazing sun shone upon my house. The white king appeared to answer the questions of my heart, and in the position that indicated career, the winged horse spread its alabaster wings. This last card was the elemental symbol for air, and had been taken by the Halani to mean magical ability, a rebirth of my power, a professional renaissance. I chewed on another stale biscuit and thought for a moment. Clearly it was going to be impossible to keep the events of Kessing a secret. I had known that before I undertook the journey. Bella had recognized me on the street, and had spoken my name at least once. She would be even more likely to mention it again after this. If I stayed in Solace City, I would be found. If I was found, there were others who would bring requests to me of a dangerous and highly emotional nature. I had sworn never to interfere again in the lives of others, but Revere had made me take another vow. Promise me you will not kill yourself after I am dead, he had said. I had been amazed. How had he known about the second vial I had mixed up, giving one to him and keeping one for myself? Promise me this disease will only take one life. And because I had been unable to refuse him anything, I had promised. But I had only in the most rudimentary way kept my vow. You cannot say I had really lived in the past eleven years. Except for the last couple of days, when once again I had held life and death in my hands, and shuddered at the responsibility. I picked up the white king and studied it a moment. A fair-haired man, or a good man, or an old man. The card meant all of these things. I had not looked for such a card in such a position at such a time in my life. Outside, I heard the gate squeal on the unoiled hinges, and running footsteps crossing the gravel walk. I did not have much time to debate whether or not I would answer the door before it was flung open and Sam strode into the room. He had never before entered my house, for he had never been invited in, and I stared at him in astonishment. He was laughing. Before I could move toward him or away, he was upon me, 
He grabbed me around the waist and lifted me in the air. I clutched at his shoulders to keep my balance, staring down at him in excitement and alarm. Samuel! Barris! I cried out. What are you doing? He actually tossed me once in the air before setting me on my feet. Then he hugged me and finally let me go. The news from Kessing arrived this morning, he said. I made a big show of smoothing my hair down after the unexpected rough treatment. It did, I said coldly. It was a miracle, they say. None of the Halani can explain it. Sir Haven of Kessing awoke this morning a whole man, with all his limbs answering the call of his will, and his mind completely sharp. He is weak, of course, and they think it will be some time before he walks again under his own power, but he is well. He is healed. There has been a general rejoicing throughout Kessing. I'm sure there has been, I said. Who brought the news to Sala City? Some peddler. Not the Lady Leonora. I wonder how she reacted to the news this morning, I said. Sam grinned. She is a most dutiful and loving daughter-in-law, he said. I'm sure she fell to her knees in gratitude. I doubt she will ever thank me personally, I said. Sam was watching me, some of his elation tempered now with speculation. Lady Bella will, though, he said, or the Lord himself. You cannot expect this secret to be kept. No, I said. I can't. And will you be here when they come, he asked. And when the others come with terrible stories of dying lords and sick children and beloved mothers racked with pain, will you be here when travelers come to Sala City looking for you? I glanced around the rented cottage. Perhaps I could have done more with it, changed the curtains or stocked the larder. I don't care much for this place, I said. That's why I spent so much time in your tavern. I have a house that is too big for one, he said, and it is very close to the tavern. I looked at him. I thought your heart was broken, I said. I know a healer, he said. I will be traveling a lot, I said. None of these sick mothers and crying babies will be able to journey to Sala City. I like to travel, he said. Croix can mind the bar. Then I suppose I will stay in Sala City, I said. Good, he said. I'll help you pack. Not that there was much to transfer to the small, welcoming house behind the tavern. Croix and Sam carried the heavier items I elected to keep. Lena helped me organize my clothes. She smiled at me shyly, and for the first time in the five years that I had known her, I attempted to make conversation. I'm glad you're staying, she told me when I asked her how she was. I'm going to have a baby. It was not quite dark yet, and we had just moved the last of my things into Sam's house, when one of the girls from the tavern ran over with more news. A delegation had been spotted on the road, led by a virtual army of blue and gold-clad guards. So soon, I murmured, wiping dust from my face. They're late, Sam said. They should have been here by noon. Who are they? Groyce asked. Friends of the noblewoman who was here? Friends of Aceras, 
Sam said. He took my hand, and we went outside together to greet the travelers. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So the author, Sharon, sent us this note about the story. She said, I set this story in the world I'd created for a book I never published, so it was easy to fill in some of the world-building details. I've always wished I had a deck of Zaffo cards. A friend gave me a deck of blank cards and we spent a fair bit of time creating some of the images described in the text, but I'm not much of an artist, so the pictures aren't too impressive. But someday, I'd like to have the whole set. Thanks for sharing that, Sharon. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes or other podcatchers so that we can build our listenership and keep the stories flowing. If you happen to decide to make a donation on the District of Wonders Patreon page, that will also help us to keep the podcast up and running. Please remember, everyone, that Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you can't change it and you really can't sell it. And please be sure to give credit where that credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors, and violators will have their fortune dealt from the bottom of the deck. I'm off to go and cook something delicious. I wish you all a fabulous day. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.